0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel Sebastian Podcast. We hope that you're blessed by this message. All right. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. And um, we, like I said, we're in the book of Matthew. We're going to be in two places tonight. And it is good to be back up here teaching. And uh, we dodged a storm on the West Coast and uh, But we had a good time doing that. And uh, how many of you just go on vacation and you just let the road take you where you need to go? Do you love those kind of vacations? I love it. No plans. I, where are we staying? I don't know. What are we eating? I don't know. Where are we going? I don't know. But it's a lot of fun. That's what we did over the last five days, so it was a lot of fun. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 11. And we're gonna be in one other place uh, tonight that I'm gonna have us go back and forth in the Word, and that'll be Matthew chapter 14. So you can just put your bulletin in 14. Chapter 14, and we are right now in Matthew chapter 11. Can you believe that in seven weeks, it's Christmas? It. Right, I know, I know. And um, yeah, so there's a lot to accomplish in seven weeks. You're gonna start seeing some changes here at the church earlier this year, and, uh, but we're excited about that. I'm quite not ready for Christmas, but um, I do like the season. I do like to see how many people come out during the holidays and, and they're seeking something in their lives. And so uh, it's always an exciting time for the church as well. But you're in chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 1. But before we get started, I've titled this teaching Committed. Committed. The question tonight is, are you committed? And I think if if you're here on a Wednesday night, I think we could just like do check, like I'm here on Wednesday night. And so, yeah, that I'm committed. But we're going to break that down a little bit. What does that mean to be committed and, and by what standard it does the word committed to Jesus mean? What, what do we, what do we, when we see ourselves, what do we evaluate in our life that gives us reason to say that I'm truly committed to Jesus Christ? And we're gonna see a man who has been completely committed to Jesus Christ, not only from the time that he was in his mother's womb, but also, all through his life, God had a purpose and a plan for him, and he stayed committed all the way to the end. Now, I'm going to give you a warning. This teaching is a rated R version half the rest of that, three quarters of the way through. So, if you have a queasy stomach, I'll let you know. You can step outside and, you know, but we will leave the podcast on because, we, you know, it's okay. It's a Bible. The Bibles are rated sometimes. But uh, this person is committed. and And I've learned so much about what his level of commitment is versus what my level of commitment is. And I think it's gonna be a challenge for each and every one of us. But I want you to notice as we've been going through Matthew, in chapters eight and nine, we've been through that already, but we've seen these amazing miracles that the Lord has done, haven't we? And he's done, in fact, in just chapter eight and chapter nine, he is, he's actually performed 10 distinct separate miracles for all to see. And, and, and it included uh, groups of people, individual people, but that's what he did. But my question tonight is, why did, see if you've been paying attention this whole year, why did Jesus perform miracles in his ministry? Anybody know? Or have an idea? To glorify the Father, to glorify the Father. Yeah. Remember, the book of John, he's constantly proving his deity. What does that mean? It's who Jesus says he is. He is who he says he is. And in the book of Matthew, just another gospel, Matthew is a lot more focused on what his miracles are. And so why? So Jesus did. He, he needed to prove his deity. These miracles also, I want you to think about this, reveal his authority over disease, demons, death, and nature. And it gives validity to who he says he is. Now, that is going to be very important to this one man that we're going to talk about tonight. And you're going to see how important that is. But beginning in chapter 11, we're going to see that the book of Matthew now from 11 through probably 19 is going to take a completely different shift than it has before. And what do I mean by that? What, What chapter 10 begins to do is that Jesus is going to give a higher level of um, focus on his disciples. He's going to intentionally spend more time with his disciples and in, in, in the gospel uh, with his disciples in these chapters to come. And the reason why is because we're gonna see an extreme amount of opposition to the gospel starting in chapter 10. And because of this opposition that that they're going to receive his ministry, his disciples and everywhere that they go is because he knows that he is drawing to the end of ministry on earth. He knows that he is on limited amount of time. He walked three and a half years on earth and he's partially through that. And so he is going to, he's going to spend more time on the men that he chose to continue to do the work after he has gone to the cross. And so in verse one, you're there. We can start there. And let's just read it. It says, After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Verse 2: when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He sent his disciples to ask him, and I want you to underline this. This is the one question that's going to be the catalyst to this whole teaching. This is a question of John the Baptist. He's with the disciples in prison, and he says, Go to Jesus and ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, I don't know about you. That is an extremely bizarre question coming from John the Baptist. Is that does that question land on you as bizarre or is it just me? It is bizarre because what do we know about John the Baptist? Well, as I said in my opening prayer, he leaped in his mother's womb, right? When Mary had Jesus and they got together, the calling was on his life. The Spirit was already at work on the calling in John the Baptist's life. And so, for John to be in prison right now, and he's doubting the deity and the validity of who Jesus says he is. Now, I want to set up the scene here. And so, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 tells us, and we've been over this many months ago, but it tells us that John was thrown into prison. So he's been in the prison. But what's important for you to understand is if you go back to John, you can just write John 4.12 in your Bible in the index area. But what's important to understand is is that Jesus hits the scene in John chapter four. John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as what? Look, the lamb has come, right? The Messiah, he came to save the world. And then we know that John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, experiences the dove coming down, which is the Holy Spirit, hears God's voice saying, this is my son, what? Who I am what? Well-pleased. This is the John that literally heard from God claiming that Jesus is God's son. And we see that he's asking this question. What's interesting is that John was thrown into jail immediately after Jesus came back from the 30-day wilderness trip into the desert. And so it's kind of interesting because if you read all the gospels, John was busy, man. He was bringing the gospel to, the, to Israel. He was telling them that I'm the forerunner. They're like, are you Elijah? And he's like, no, I'm not Elijah. But one who's coming, I'm not even worthy to tie his straps, his sandals. And so he, he was telling them, the one whom the prophets say is coming is coming. He was extremely busy. His ministry was very fruitful, and he was baptizing people in the name of the one who would come. And so he's been extremely busy. But what's interesting is, is that when Jesus goes to the desert, the minute he gets back, and this is the enemy. This is what we have to understand with the enemy. The minute he comes back, John who had been doing the work of Jesus, is now thrown in jail. And this is what we see in John chapter 4. Now, I've asked you to put your bulletin in Matthew 14, and I want you to turn to Matthew 14. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. So if you're here tonight, when we get to 14, we're not going to cover this again. So you're getting like two sermons in one, okay? I don't think we have to take up another offering, but you're getting two sermons. We're gonna skip right over this. So you can, I'll, I'll tell them to go back and look at, look at this teaching when we get to 14. But I think this is important to understand. We need to set the scene for this so that you fully understand what's happening. First thing I want you to write down before we read verse three, Matthew chapter 14, verse three. It's up on the screen. Christ followers, be committed no matter the cost. Be committed no matter the cost, super simple. Now let's begin in verse 3 if you're all there. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now I want you to understand what has happened. Now, King Herod, I understand, is a king that um, later we're gonna find that w- killed the firstborn male. Okay, this is that king. He is ruthless. He is he is a terrorist of that time against Jesus Christ, the gospel, and anything of it, all right? And this, and so it makes sense to me that, that he is not happy with John the Baptist. But it's not just because John the Baptist, God used him as an incredible tool for the gospel. But you're gonna see what happened is, is her, uh, Harold of Galilee, King Harold of Galilee, paid a visit to his brother in Rome. And during that visit, he seduced his brother's wife and then he came home again, and he dismissed his own wife and married the sister-in-law whom he had lured away from her husband. That is what happened. Now, who knows about this? John the Baptist. John knew about it. Look at verse four. For John had been saying to him, who's him, King Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Harold wanted to kill John but he was afraid of the people because they considered John to be what? A prophet. And so what we see is John has publicly and sternly rebuked King Harold. Now, King Harold had a lot of influence over the the region and obviously his kingdom. This is not something that, that the king wants out there. And John is calling him out. He is really pointing out the king's sin. And I don't know about you, that probably never goes down well in any culture, any year, right? Especially publicly. And so this is what John does. And so what you see here is John is exactly acting out what a prophet can be known for. And I think it's important to stop and pause for a minute tonight that we understand what a prophet is. I want you to understand that God in the Old Testament shows his prophets, God is the one who would choose them. I want you to understand that man never appoints himself as a prophet. Now we can have the gift of prophecy, right? First Corinthians 12, we can have that gift. You'll see, I'm gonna have a list that I'm gonna give you um, up on the, on the uh, screen in a minute, but you'll see the gifts of prophecy kind of correlating with it, but that's not the same as a prophet of the old times. So God, it's important to know that God chooses his prophets. And I found this statement, and I like it. Influence and authority does not come from rank, education, wisdom, or wealth, but entirely from the fact that God chooses men to be his messengers. And God chooses his prophets. Here's the definition of a prophet. Look up on the screen. You can write this definition down. A prophet is simply one that is appointed by God himself to be his messenger, to be his mouthpiece, to intercede for God's heart and to boldly do that. Now, when you think of that and we see what John has just done here, I want you to see the functions of the Old Testament prophet and then you'll understand if you have a gift of prophecy, maybe you're in here and you have that. You'll understand, you'll see, you go, I I could kind of do that, I could kind of be known for that. The first thing is, is that the function of a prophet is to reveal the nature and attributes of God to men. That's what a prophet does. Next, to call the people back to obedience to God's laws. And we see, this is, it, bless you, this is exactly what, what, what uh, John is doing to King Harold. He's saying, you are in disobedience to God and his law, and you need to fix it. He's not worried about what his kingdom thinks. He's not worried about the consequences. We know that many prophets of the Old Testament, what, they lost their head. They were killed because of what they said. Remember, they're a messenger and a mouthpiece of God. And so God's supernaturally gives prophets a boldness when they need it to do what what God calls them next. A prophet's function is to exhort the people to sincerity in worship. A prophet's not just to be a killjoy. A prophet is not just to bust people in their sin. A prophet's also to encourage people, to to, uh, uh, draw them near to the Lord, so that they would experience God through their obedience to God. Next, a prophet is to, and you know this, is to foretell future events which God had willed. The Old Testament is all about prophecy. Prophecy of Jesus, the death on the cross. Um, John the Baptist had many prophecies. We're gonna look at one in a minute. And then finally, prophets were used to not only hear from God, but to record the word of God in the Holy Scriptures. And we see many prophets that have done that in the Old Testament. Now, I've got you in Matthew chapter 14. I needed you to understand why there's this this, uh, rift between King Herod and John the Baptist. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 11, where you were, and then keep your bullets in there. We're gonna go back one more time tonight. And look at verse three, Matthew 11, verse three. Before we read that, I want you to understand that we, we come back to verse three where John is in prison. And I was thinking about that. You know, when John first got thrown into prison, he's probably thinking, eh, whatever. You know, it's prison. I'm with Jesus. He's on the scene. He'll get me out of it, right? And so that's probably his attitude at first. Um, but then after a while, <coughs> which if you read all of the gospels, you'll see that he was actually in prison for weeks to months, by the time the disciples got to him. And so put yourself in those shoes. Maybe it's a situation that you're in where it is just very difficult. It's extreme and it's not comfortable. It may not be prison, but it may be something close emotionally to you. And I want you to think about that. When you deal with that for weeks or months at hand, does it seem to wear you down? Does it seem to zap your hope? Yeah, me too. Me too. And so this is where we see the whittling down of of this uh, security that John the Baptist had in this. And so after a while being in this prison, we see that he begins to question things. And that's why we see the statement where he questions the validity of Jesus. And so I imagine this is what he's saying. Jesus is out there he's doing things, but why isn't he here with his disciples? Why isn't he here with me? Why isn't he interceding with King Herod and and trying to, to get me out? And so look at verse three, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's the question at hand tonight. And this question is what he tells the disciples to go and approach and confront Jesus with. And again, I love his boldness because I don't know if we always do that. I think we murmur to God more than we like literally get the brass tacks and say, Jesus, I'm not happy with this. Like oftentimes we won't say that directly, but John does. He's like, not only is he saying, why aren't you getting me out of prison? He's saying, are you really Jesus? Are you really who you say you are? What's interesting is in John chapter one, John the Baptist clearly recognized him as a Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Let me look, or you can look on the screen. 129, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 34. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And I thought about that. How do I respond when my situation or circumstance wears me down. Because I truly believe in John's heart. You can't experience what you did with Jesus and then not believe that he is who he is. I seriously doubt that John is saying, well, I'm checking you off. I'm waiting for the next Messiah. I might as well just be like the Jews, not believe that you came. I don't think that's where he's at at all. Any of you believe that? I don't. I think he's responding emotionally I think that the enemy is wearing him down. I think his circumstances are wearing him down. And I think he's like, I I don't care what it takes. I just need you to go and have this conversation with Jesus and go, hey, I'm done. If this is testing, I'm good. Like, come get me. Like, I know what you have the capability to do. So would you please come and do this? Because he's hearing everything that Jesus did. Maybe he's thinking this, if you're really Jesus and you have all the power and authority in heaven and earth, Maybe you can free me today. Like, don't make me stay another day in prison. Look at Isaiah 61. You wanna know why John is thinking this? Listen, John knew the scripture. He knew the Old Testament. Look what Isaiah 61 says who Jesus is. It's prophetic. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and the what? the prisoners will be free. What's interesting is is that this prophet Isaiah was not necessarily talking about someone behind the physical bars, were they? They were talking about the spiritual bondage of the law that the law placed on them. This prophecy was talking about Jesus, the Messiah that would come and free people spiritually, that they would know of the new Messiah. And and so John, in his wearing down process, is like, hey, you said you'd free prisoners. I'm going to hold you to my word. And I think about that. How many times are we so miserable that we'll pick up the word of God, and we'll look at it, and we'll try to make that passage meet where we're at? When we know that we've been taught on that passage, and, and we just try to like mold it, we try to put that square peg into the round hole, and we want to feel good about it whether it pacifies us, whether it comforts us, but we know that's not exclusively what the Word of God's saying. You can read the passage before that and the passage after that to figure out that that's not really that kind of a Word of God for me at this moment. This is why it's important that we understand what the Word of God is and read all of the Scriptures, all of the passage, find out where is this taking place, what does it mean for this person, Who is speaking this? What time was this? What happened before this event? What happened after this event? And so John is looking at this going, Jesus, I'm holding you to the prophecy, and if you don't do this, you're not gonna fill prophecy. And I can understand where he's at. Truth of the matter is John has doubt. He has doubt in his heart. And we're going through an experiencing God study in in our small group that my wife and I go to down here. And... It's called experiencing God. And I, and I think this, this statement that John Blackaby makes is so appropriate for where John is at. And he calls it a crisis of belief. We see here that John is right smack dab in the middle of crisis of belief. And he's saying, Jesus, are you real? Because if you are, as faithful as I've been to you, why am I in this prison right now? And if you love me, why don't you do something about it? I can admire someone who has that kind of a real talk with Jesus. You know what, Jesus likes that. He wants to hear you be honest with him. Sometimes we feel like we've got to camouflage ourselves or dance around what we really need to say to him. Have you ever been there? Do you ever doubt? Have you ever experienced a crisis of belief in your own life? Do you ever let your circumstances determine your belief about your Savior? I've been there. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I think we've all been in that situation if we're honest with ourselves. Maybe you're here and you're going through a crisis of belief right now, this very moment. Maybe I am too. All of us at one time or another will have doubts in our lives Maybe there's even someone here that even doubt that God keeps his promises for us because we can't see past the obstacle that's placed right in front of us. But I wanna remind you tonight that God is aware. God is 100% aware of your circumstance and God is there for you. And we don't determine that by what he does about it. We need to settle that in our hearts that God loves us and he wants what's best for us and that his will is is better than anything that we could tell him to do in that situation. I love this saying by Paul Tillich. I don't even know who he is. If someone knows who it is, tell me who it is after this teaching. But I love what he said. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. You get it? What does that mean? We first, if we have faith tonight, I guarantee you that our faith was developed at one time because of our doubt. See, we had to experience doubt in our life before we could experience faith in our life. The Bible says that we cannot please God without faith. Well, how do we develop our faith? It's those times that we don't know what to do and we're right smack dab in the middle of a crisis of belief. When we're in that and when we are doubting, then the question is, what do we do about it? What are you and I to do about it? And I know we can preach this sermon, but I want you to look at it this way. What do we really, what is is the heart of God? What does he really want us to do about that when we have doubt? I simply put it this way, we need to cry out to the Lord. We just need to let him know where we're at and what we're doing. And, And can I tell you, I don't think I'm too far off on saying this, Jesus is okay with us telling him that we don't understand it. Because you know what? We don't have to understand it. He's the author. And as long as we know that he's the author of what's in our life, then we find comfort in understanding it. We have to trust him in that. We need to cry out and then we need to trust. But I want you to understand something because I'm guilty of this. Crying out to the Lord is not complaining to the Lord. How many of you complain to the Lord? Come on, come on, man. We're Wednesday night. It's not Sunday right? Yeah. I find myself complaining an awful lot. I was challenged this week that I need to stop complaining and I need to cry out. I need to say, Lord, I don't get this. I don't like it. I don't know what's going to become of it. But God, you do. You understand and you're with me. Crying out to the Lord is really rendering everything over to the Lord It's us saying, here, God, whatever it is, hold your hand out like this right now. Just hold, I'm serious, hold your hand out. Whatever it is, whatever this thing is, if you've got something, just focus that in your hand. It's just saying, God, I've been holding this way too long. There it is. Just give it to him. Throw it to him. Give him a fastball. It's okay. And then we need to trust. We need to trust that he got it. He caught the ball. He plays for the Washingtons. <laughs> it's also saying and meaning it from our heart. God, have Your way with me. Have Your way with this situation that I'm facing. I uh, I asked Dana to pick up this puzzle on the way to Walmart. I, Dana, can we just can we just give a hand to Dana? I call her every Wednesday. <laughs> and send her to the weirdest places before the teaching. Like, Dana, I need pumpkins. Go get pumpkins. She shows up with pumpkins on Wednesday. Today, she gets a phone call, and I'm like, Dana, I need a puzzle. You got it? like, did you happen to pack a puzzle when you moved from, you know, up north? And she's like, I don't know. She's asking the kids. But I ask her to bring a puzzle, and I wanna use this as an example. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to put a puzzle together without having the cheat sheet? in front of you? Yeah, it's harder. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah, it's harder. yeah right? So like, I re- I, you know, I- I'm old school. Someone accused me of trying to look young today. Thank you. I love you, brother. I'm not trying to look young today, all right? All I'm saying is it was a cold front, and I put on a blazer, but then it's hot again. But anyhow, the bottom line is, is that I grew up with my grandmother who loved puzzles, and my dad, where he got it from, he loves puzzles too. And so I would always see this I would always see this. No matter what time of the day or week or whatever, we could be having Christmas dinner and, and we're supposed to eat at the table and there's puzzle pieces all over it, right? But I always notice this. There's always the lid, always the lid sitting there. And I'm thinking, you're so good at puzzles, what do you need a lid for? Yeah, but what happens if we get rid of the lid? And you've never put the puzzle together before. Where do you start? Corners. Corners. All right, let me look through 500 pieces for a corner. Right? All right. Then you go, what's the next step? The straight pieces for the sides. Then then what do you do? You pick a bold color, right? You start with, with the color. Yeah. Then you sort by color. But what What happens? Oh, we got some puzzle people. Who's, who's saying all that? Who's, who knows what they're doing? Forgive me, what's your name again? Denise? You get this puzzle at the end of the teaching. You win, you win. I should have brought that to the top 10 concert. But what happens when you get to a place where you can't find where a piece goes. You get out the scissors. I want, you to, I want you to know something tonight. There's a danger. There's a danger for each and every one of us. See, every obstacle, every situation, every obstacle or situation that brings doubt to our lives can be represented with this piece. Peace. The danger of holding on to this piece and trying to find where it fits when you've tried over and over and over and it doesn't seem to fit in the puzzle. Now, I I don't, Dana, I don't know where Dana got this. I think she went to a a fruit stand and found it. I don't know. Did you go to Walmart? Dollar General. General. See, good steward of God's money. Thank you for your tithing. She won't go to Walmart. (laughs) But the danger that I think all of us need to be careful is, is that this puzzle is a representation of our obstacle. And we often get frustrated because if this is the last piece of the puzzle and it doesn't fit no matter what we try, and we try and we try and we try, but I can tell you that when we invite Jesus and we give him that puzzle, he knows the purpose of that last piece. Church, can I tell you, God knows the pieces of the puzzle that you hold into your hand. That lid, that's God. He knows what that picture is going to look like when you're done putting that puzzle together. And your life is that puzzle on the table in God's hand. He knows where every piece of life that you're experiencing, He knows the purpose for that piece. And one day, you'll look down and I'm sure that's a beautiful picture on that lid, but one day you'll look down and God will show you why you had to hold that piece. And then he's gonna ask us one other question. Why'd you hold on to it so long? Why didn't you hand it over to me? I had a place for that piece of the puzzle of your life. James 1, 6 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave. We know this tossed in the sea back and forth, right? No stability. He says, ask in faith, but when you do, don't doubt. I wrote some things down. I want you to listen really clearly. I should have put it up on the screen. Exercising faith doesn't mean that we give up. Exercising faith doesn't mean that we stop caring, Exercising faith doesn't mean that we are irresponsible. Exercising faith means we learn to surrender our will. Exercising faith means we learn to trust God with the outcome. Exercising faith means we grow closer to Jesus. Exercising faith means we can't see the puzzle completed, but God can. We need to trust him. We need to hand over portions of our life when we don't make sense of it. And then we need to trust him. Second point I want you to write down, Christ followers, be committed even during a crisis of belief. Verse four, you're there. Look down at verse four, Jesus replied. Now remember, the disciples have delivered this this bizarre statement. And I love how Jesus responds. He's not angry. He's just saying, John, John, John. Look at verse four. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed, and those, and the deaf ear hear, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, that's an encouraging message. What Jesus is saying is, he didn't get angry, he didn't get upset that John was questioning his validity. What he said was, "Is hey, John, I'm doing everything that I said I could do. I am doing what I said I would do. And he's reminding John that he is more than capable of changing that situation. Jesus wanted to assure both John and his disciples that he was the true Messiah. And he wanted John to know that that same Jesus that he baptized is the same Jesus that he calls himself to be. He also reminded them that his power would be displayed. You think about Jesus, he often did miracles with the ones and the twos. You know, Moses is like God stretched the waters, free thousands of slaves, you know, open the waters, part the waters. Moses did that kind of stuff. Jesus, he wasn't into that. He fed the 5,000, but oftentimes the miracles were personal and relational with the ones and the twos. Do you remember the woman who bled for 12 years? That was personal. Jesus healed her. Do you remember Lazarus? One dead man, Lazarus, get up, walk. The guy on the mat. Pool was flooded with people that needed healed, but the guy on the mat, he said, pick up your mat and walk. The woman caught in adultery, what'd he say? There's no accusers. Go, sin no more. What about the thief on the cross, hanging next to him his last day as a man in the flesh on earth? He said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was all about the one. He was all about the two. What about the Samaritan woman at the well? The conversation he had with her and she believed that he was who he said he was. You know, tonight I want you to think of that. He wants to be personal and relational with you. As I told you, he knows about your circumstance. He just wants to hear you say that you need him. And God, I believe, is doing a miracle in this room in each and every one of your lives if you will allow him If you're having a crisis of belief, allow him to work a miracle in your life. Trust him in his own timing, in his own way, that he will do it. And we all have been in a place in our lives where we're frustrated with our situation, and we do wanna question our Savior. How many times do we just wanna scream, Jesus, why aren't you doing more? Look at verse six and 11. Now, I wanna, we're gonna go quickly through that. And um, verses six through 11, I want you to see that Jesus gives honor to John the Baptist and his faithfulness and obedience to God for his life of commitment to him. And so Jesus is gonna do this because you'll see shortly that John is breathing his last moments on earth. And so it's interesting, look at verse six, Jesus goes on to say, blessed is anyone who does not stumble On account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, now I don't know if they could hear what he's going to say to the crowd in earsight. They may have never heard him. I would have loved to see that they heard this this text, this verse that we're going to read, because I think it would have brought John comfort in prison. I think that he would have really known how his Savior, his Jesus, felt about him. He's going to give accolades to the entire crowd about John the Baptist, who is now imprisoned. But it says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind. You know what Jesus was saying when he refers to the reed? He's saying that John was not easily swayed by the opinions of people in his calling of life. He didn't lack conviction. He wasn't easily moved off his assignment from God. Remember, he was a true prophet, And he often spoke what people didn't want to hear. And he wasn't influenced by wealth. He just did what God called him to do. Look at verse eight. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are kings in palaces. Remember, John in the text was described in the the scriptures that he wore a coat of what? Camel's hair. And he ate what? Locusts. That's exactly what John is saying. He says, this man who's in prison, he was committed. He didn't live a life that was easy. Don't think of him that way, crowd. Verse nine, then what did you go to see, he says? A prophet, question mark, yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Look up on the slide, Isaiah 40, verse three, another prophet talking about John the Baptist, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Verse 11, truly I tell you, amongst those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he Remember when Jesus would often meet a new crowd, he, they would say, um, are you Elijah? Remember, they would question him. Well, what are you if you're not Elijah? Because remember, they were told Elijah would come back. But what you just heard that Jesus gave to the crowd was John's eulogy. And it was given directly by Jesus. You see, John is about to face his death, but not a permanent death because John found eternal life in his savior. Even in the midst of his doubt, he knew wholeheartedly who Jesus was. You see, John was committed. And so the question is that I began, at the beginning of the teaching, the question that you and I need to answer is, are we truly committed to being a Christ follower? Think about this. If Jesus was able to stand at your funeral and speak of your eulogy, what would he say about you? What would he say about me? That's kind of scary because automatically we go into performance. Some of you are already writing a resume. Jesus, say this. But remember, Jesus truly did John's eulogy because he knew his heart. And that's what Jesus is gonna looks at in us is our hearts, our commitment from our heart. Not when we get upset, not when we're frustrated, not when we complain and murmur to him, but truly our heart for him. That's the kind of commitment that I'm asking you tonight. Are we truly committed with our heart? Our hearts. And Jesus knew that the same king who had put John the Baptist captured him and put him behind bars, was the same king, remember, who had thousands of newborn baby boys murdered to eliminate the Christ child, Jesus Christ. And this is the same wicked man that was now, John had his, was in his hands. Look at verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 14 very quickly, verse six. Jesus shifts in his language about the kingdom is being attacked with violence. We're just gonna read it word for word here, starting in verse six, Matthew 14, verse six. This is the rest of the soap opera of the affair the King Harold is having. And it says in verse six, I believe it is, on Harold's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest. And this pleased Harold so much that he promised an oath to give her whatever she asked for. Uh Uh-oh. Prompted by her mother, which by the way, was probably very perturbed that their sin was out in the open publicly, right? So now it's vengeance time. She saw her angle to get vengeance on John. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Oh, by the way, this is rated R. So if you, you, know, if you have a squimish stomach, it's about to shift to rated R here. But the king was distressed. But because of his host and his dinner guests, and I'm just gonna insert his pride in front of people, he had John's head, brought on a platter and given to the girl who then carried it to her mother. And I was thinking about that. That is violent. I can't even picture that. Talking about losing your mind, (laughs) right? But what was the history of the disciples? Remember I said following Jesus is truly gonna cost you his disciples were violently persecuted. Let me just run down quickly. Peter was crucified and hung upside down. Andrew was crucified as well. Matthew received spears all throughout his body and then beheaded. Nathaniel, who was Bartholomew, was basically flayed to death by a whip where he was literally torn into shreds. Thomas died from stab wounds. Philip was impaled by iron hooks in his ankles and hung upside down to die and then put him in into boiling oil because he wouldn't die quick enough. James, the son of Zebedee, was beheaded by King Harold, two for two. Jude was crucified. James was dragged into the temple and then beaten to death. Simon was crucified. James, half-brother of Jesus, was thrown off a 100-foot wall and beaten to death with clubs. And Paul was beheaded. And the beloved John on the island of Patmos died probably the most quiet death. I always laugh about that because he told the disciples, I'm the one Jesus loves. He wasn't even tortured. He died of old age is what the theologians say. But the question tonight, church, is do we see violence and persecution today around the world? I just pulled an article out and I wanna share it with you. It says that close to 100,000 Christians are being killed every year because of their faith. According to the statistics from a Pew Research survey, this was produced in 2015. I wanna break that down to you for the alarming statistics. That means that 273 Christians who press, pro, uh, pro, uh, that pro, say the word, profess, thank you. The profess Christ is king die daily. Let me break it down one more time. That's 11 people that will die because they stand for Jesus every hour. In the hour of this teaching, 11 people died because of Jesus Christ. Do we have problems in America today? If you were at the concert, I played the video back. I love how one of our wonderful ladies who helped us with the top top 10 video, the last video we played to reveal the number one song. Did you catch what she said? I believe she assessed America perfectly. Listen to her words and I quote her. Today, our society openly vilifies Christ. That was powerful. When I saw that the first time, I was like, where did she hear that? Because that's exactly what's happening. Church, I will tell you that if you're walking around in passivity about Jesus, your rights are gonna be taken away from you. The world is telling us that we, that we can't offend this and we can't offend that, and, and I, I, I believe that. I don't think we should offend people. I think we should love people, but I can guarantee you the rest of the world is not worried about offending a Christian. And the reason why they're not worried about offending Christians is because we are silent. And I'm not talking about being weird because ultimately you wanna win them to Christ. I'm talking about when something's offensive to your spirit, the Holy Spirit shows you, you know what's offensive to you. But then pray for an open door, not to come out. I'm like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm coming at you. No, but to just say, hey man, what, why are you Why are you using that language? Why are you so angry? What's going on with you? Talk to me. It's that kind of stuff. But if we don't say anything in our schools, in our neighborhoods, standing in line to pick up a pizza and hear the language, if we don't say anything, if we don't start telling the rest of the world that we're offended because we believe in Jesus Christ, because I'm telling you, people are telling us, they're telling us that we're offensive, they're telling us that our faith is offensive to them. If we don't start speaking up, we're gonna lose our rights. It's just the way it's, it's, it's becoming. And Jesus said, it's violent. The kingdom is violently being attacked and it's happening still today. Last place as we close, turn back to Matthew 11, chapter 13. We're gonna finish up. Verse 13, I'll start reading, you'll catch up. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Very quickly, he's not saying that, that, that John the Baptist was Elijah. He's saying he's, he was greater than Elijah because of his works and what he did. Verse 15, whoever has ears, let them hear. I love that statement. I know many of you know that. We often see, when you, whenever you hear this statement all throughout the Bible, whoever has ears, let him hear, we often see this phrase, that it's, when script, it's when something of great value or importance or a point that is meant to be taken very seriously is about to be said. Yeah, I think of Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3. Remember when John had a vision and a revelation and an angel uh, that was said to be Jesus spoke to him. And remember what he was talking about, the seven churches. He would name the church. He would say, here's what you did right. Here's what you're doing wrong. And how did he conclude that last sentence? You can go and study that, but here's what he says. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the what? To the churches. What that revelation was saying was that what I'm about to give you, John, is very important, and and you're to take heed to that, And, and you can... You can see it as to be true. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. Verse 16 through 19, it just quickly, just to sum it up, we see that Jesus openly rebukes those who would not receive the ministry of John the Baptist or even his own ministry. Let's read in verse 16. Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? And I think, what would he say about our generation? They are all like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. Verse 17, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. A a dirge simply means that it's a song that expresses sorrow or death. And And it says, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he is a demon. And yet, 19, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hello, at least they got that part of it right. He was a friend of sinners. Aren't you thankful? I am. But they criticized him. But wisdom is proven right by their deeds. You know what Jesus is saying in these last three verses? He's saying that there were those who rejected the gospel that John the Baptist brought, and guess what? They also rejected me. So what do we do with that? Do we see the gospel being rejected today? Why? Why is the gospel rejected today? Very quickly, you see it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 118. The message of the cross is what? Foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is very powerful to God. I'm gonna read you, and you can write it down in your little index here. 2 Corinthians 4.4. Listen to these words. Satan who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. And so when we see and understand why people don't believe that it is foolishness, is that a reason for us to stop witnessing to those around us? Not at all. Why not? Two reasons, because one, he hasn't come back to take us. You're still breathing, I'm still breathing. We are the messengers. We are the John the Baptists of this decade, this generation. The youth, they're the next generation. And we need to be be ready. The second reason why we shouldn't stop witnessing is, don't ever forget the Holy Spirit is still at work on earth. Why? Because we're here. I've been saying this every weekend, I don't know why, but maybe it's just something that I needed to know. I've been saying on the weekends, when you come into this place, you bring Jesus with you. That's the truth of it. The Holy Spirit is in us and the Holy Spirit will work through us so that others will know the salvation of our Lord and Savior. Remember, the Spirit is the one who prepares man's heart to receive the gospel. Look at John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will testify about me. Can I tell you that there are people all around you that the spirit is coming alongside and God is just waiting for you to open your mouth? He's waiting. Be faithful. Walk in your calling. Be committed. And the last point that I want you to write down, Christ followers, be committed even when the gospel is rejected. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, we thank you that as we look at this table of puzzle pieces, Lord, for many of us, maybe we hold a few pieces in our hand and we, we don't see how it even fits in the puzzle of life. But God, we, tonight, we literally hand it over to you and we say, Lord, put the pieces together. Have your way with us. God, whatever obstacle it is, you've not forsaken us. I pray that each and every person here would be encouraged tonight. I pray that your Holy Spirit spoke something to each and every one of us, Lord, and that we would remember this and that it would encourage us, Father, for what you have said to us today. We give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, Amen. see you this weekend. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Sebastian podcast channel. If this message impacted your life, we encourage you to share it with a friend. We're located at 1251 Sebastian Boulevard, just northeast of intersection 90th Avenue and State Road 512 in Sebastian, Florida. Our service times are Saturday evening at 6 p.m., Sunday morning at 1045 a.m., and Wednesdays at 630 p.m.